0: programs, treatments, or products. We thank you for joining us and are proud to provide excellence in broadcasting for the special needs community. And now, on to the interview. Good evening and welcome to the Coffee Clatch. This is Marianne Russo. Uh, I have a fabulous show for you tonight. We're very excited to have back Dr. Carol Semango Sprouse. Dr. Sprouse has been working with young disabled children since 1982. She specializes in the neurodevelopmental assessment of children with complex medical conditions. Um, She is trained in neuromotor and neurocognitive development, neurobehavioral skills, and oral motor assessment for children with an emphasis on young children with genetic disorders. She is trained in neurodevelopmental treatment and certified in the assessment of preterm infant behavior and the Brazelton neonatal assessment scale. If that's not enough, she is the author of more than 60 articles on the neurocognitive capabilities of atypical children, She studies the relationship between the brain and behavior and its impact on school performance in children with neurogenetic disorders, and um, she is the director of the Neurodevelopmental Diagnostic Center for Young Children, and she uses these programs to recognize the complex interaction and intimate connection between brain, cognition, behavior, learning, and medical diagnosis, which we know for a lot of parents is very confusing. Dr. Samango-Sprouse trains and educates parents and professionals to understand the complex interaction between neurodevelopmental disorders, learning, um, and educational success. She has the largest patient population in the world of children who are prenatally diagnosed with X and Y chromosomal variation, and she is also the founder, executive director, and chief science officer for the Focus Foundation. I'm thrilled that this is my third interview. I'm with Dr. Sprouse in two previous, very in-depth interviews. Um, The first interview, we discussed the Focus Foundation, dyslexia, dyspraxia. We spoke um, a lot about the XY chromosome, chromosomal variations, especially in boys. Um, And next week, she is coming back, and we are going to be discussing uh, the biological treatment to promote recovery from dyslexia. But tonight, we are talking autism. We are talking early identification of infants at high risk for autism at nine months of age. It's really pretty incredible. She's done a study that looked at the use of head circumferences and head-tilting reflexes, two biomarkers um, that are used um, during baby well visits um, by their primary provider, the pediatricians. And um, these screenings were given to nearly 1,000 patients at age four, six, and nine months. So we're going to hear from her right now. Dr. Samango Sprouse, it's an honor to have you back.
1: Oh, I'm thrilled to be back. Thank you so much for asking me.
0: Well, you know, this study has just really been making the rounds um, in social media, and, um, you know, I'm so glad that um, I could have you on to discuss it because, you know, a lot of studies come out and a lot of times parents don't understand why there are different um, biomarkers or why things are done. So can you tell us a little bit about this study and, um, you know, how what made you look at these biomarkers?
1: Yeah, That's a very interesting question, and I get asked that often. I mean, what I've taken care of children with autism for, like, more than 20 years. It was uncommon when I started, and then, of course, it became very common. And what I had been watching for a long time and suggesting to many people was that there was an impact very early on in the babies on motor, but it was going to be subtle. And so I went looking for... What we, in the literature, what people were sort of thinking, and we found nobody really investigating the motor relationship of the young babies as a biomarker. And the idea of a biomarker is it's a red flag, that something is off and it bubbles up in specific disorders and it becomes sort of their character signature, one of the characteristics for and so we knew when we looked at the literature, we found that everybody was focused on head circumference, um, but nobody was sort of flagging the idea of what the head circumference What else could go with the head circumference? And so I found a very old study um, by Dr. Teitelbaum, who I'd actually heard speak and had spoken to about the fact that the reflex, retrospectively looking on um, videotapes, this was like sort of the mid-'90s, late-'90s, he published it, could be a marker for kids who later developed autism. And so I decided that it made the most sense to marry those two because we knew pediatricians did, well baby checkups, we knew they did head circumference routinely. And the reason I wanted something that was fast as and efficient and as reliable as possible is because pediatricians are really tight for time. And it has to be something that can be sort of universally given. They develop sort of a habit for looking for it, and then that gives them the red flag to go look further.
0: Well, you, you discussed two. We're talking about head circumference, which, you know, we know all the pediatricians do. I don't think, I know I never asked. Um, Maybe other parents have. And the tilting reflex. So what are you looking for with both of those features?
1: Well, the head circumference, what happens is we know that there's a phenomenon associated with autism that all babies go through this massive brain growth in the first year of life, but in the as we get closer to six, seven, eight, nine months, there's what literally pruning. They sort of, if you think of pruning a tree, it's very similar in, to the dendrites. They're cutting back um, and sort of specializing um, for the brain growth. But we know with kids with autism that their heads often start out majority typical like 50th percentile, but something between six months and nine months they take off. Their head sizes are very enlarged and they're disproportionate to what you would expect based on their height and their weight. So a baby who's at the 95th percentile for height and weight and head, that makes sense. It's a big baby. But you begin to wonder about the baby whose head is at the 90th percentile, but their weight and their length is at the 30th. So we, other people have published on this, and so we very specifically were looking for this acceleration of head circumference at a very critical time, which was it was going to serve as somewhere between four and nine months because everybody had reported and we had all observed sort of normal head size in the first four months, and lots of people had been documenting accelerated head size by 12 months of age. So it was, you know, it was a relatively narrow window. And then we went looking for the head tilt reflex for two reasons. One, based on um, tidal bonds finding. It really intrigued me because the motor system is really very reflective of a central nervous system, and we see that in lots of disorders from sort of cradle to grave. If you think about Parkinson's, the motor system is one of the mm-hmm. early signs. Think about Alzheimer's; people often report about not only do they lose cognitive function, but also their gait changes, and there's some other subtle changes. So that made sense to go look in the babies with autism because we had all known clinically that there were motor planning problems, that kids had trouble executing sort of discrete, demanding motor tasks. And just based on my training and my experience with infants, I knew that meant that we would see something if we went looking in something very primitive, something very early on that we were likely to see changes and then Peitelbaum had this little bubble saying that he had looked and noticed it that several reflexes were off on the babies. So it was just from my you know, from my perspective, it was like the light bulb went on and said, let's look at these two things and see if they give us an insight or a window of opportunity to find the babies.
0: So what type of study was this? Where was this conducted or how was this conducted?
1: Well, it was conducted um, in the suburban area of Maryland um, where my office is. We had four, we had three very large um, pediatric practices and then a fourth came on board sort of midway through. And we did it in typical babies because I wanted sort of, for lack of a better word, a virgin population. So nothing that put them at risk. They were just sort of growing along well and to then go look for the babies who came out and looked like they were, you know, troublesome or having difficulties. So we did it in primarily English-speaking families so that we didn't have to worry about anything convoluted or complicating it if the directions, you know, if anything were problematic from a language, primary language standpoint. And we did it in full term babies who had no other known complications they you know sort of breathed in then you know they were born they were delivered they came home so it was a very solid what you would expect to be typically developing and we trained the pediatricians and we trained them on how to um so, so we could get unique and consistent implementation of the head tilt reflex i mean pediatricians know this they're taught in their training you know, we discuss this whenever we talk about red flags of development for training pediatricians that reflexes are valuable, but we sort of just unified it and said this is how you know it's going to be administered and this is what's positive, this is what's negative. And then we went back and made sure that everybody was measuring in a systematic and exactly the same way, you know, position of the... Where the tape is going over the you know over the eyebrows and above the ears and not resting on the eyebrows, so it was uniform
0: mm-hmm.
1: and we had them collect, and we collected you know one thousand and twenty four babies, so it was a very large study right. of typical kids coming along, and then what we did was if the babies failed, if their heads accelerated or were above the seventy fifth percentile, both of which we at that point we were not sure whether it was going to be the acceleration or the fact that they were just large heads. In the final phase that we're doing, we now know the acceleration is very important versus just a large head. But we did both of those factors, and anybody who failed the head tilt was essentially flagged for an evaluation, um, and so they came into the office for a complete neurodevelopmental evaluation. And then we started looking for what we hypothesized would be the early indications for autism. So we knew we had these kids that were at risk, and we looked for their social connectedness, how well they played with objects, how well they responded to separation from their mothers, and then we did a battery of standardized testing.
0: And what we found... I'm sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. No, I wanted to just go back for one minute and just say that up until now, basically the gold standard that's used is the MCHAT. Yes. So um, how does this differ, and at what age were the kids, um, the infants really, that you were testing?
1: Well, it it differs very significantly. The MCHAT is most reliable at 16 months to 24 months, but peak time being 16 months – we were actually looking at the infants at nine months of age. So it was, you know, seven months earlier and very important time because of the burst of language development that comes between sort of nine and 16 months. So, and one of the reasons that I was looking for it was we know early intervention works with all neurodevelopmental disorders. We know it works you know, Kathy Lord has done a wonderful job showing how well it works in kids who are diagnosed between two years versus four years of age with autism. And so my point was if we could get them at nine months of age and make and determine they were at risk, this would really give us a huge jump developmentally for families and for the infants and really potentially promote recovery at an even better rate. Right. And
0: um when you, when you talk about head circumference, so are there any other um, disorders or um, differences that may account for the head size, um, you know, as going forward? Because once you identify these children, or is this something that you primarily find in children that w- may um, eventually wind up being on the spectrum?
1: Well, there's lots of genetic disorders that have large head circumference associated with them. Um, but the the most of those babies i mean the first thing you think about is a medical condition from long ago which is relatively uncommon today something called hydrocephalus right, where right. you know there's yeah, yeah because there's insufficient um, and consistent um flow of the you know the fluid from the spinal column there's actually a blockage and the head is you know enlarged secondary to that and that is something that's common you know, would be a common explanation for large head size. In kids with autism, it's actually rarely, rarely occurs. But there are lots of disorders, but none where you get this massive acceleration. So you start out with head size that's relatively normal, and then there's this rapid acceleration. So that seems very unique to autism as far as anyone can tell, and particularly in the window of time it's at between this sort of four and nine months
0: it's really incredible, because, as you said, early intervention really is key um, so you know when you what did you find of these thousand or so children um, how long were you how long ago was this study done, and have you followed up and and what did you find what were the findings was it really a, did you find it was a good indicator we
1: did we found that was tremendously accurate and so We saw the babies at nine months, um, between sort of nine and 12 months, depending how quickly, you know, they got in and got set up for evaluation. But then we had a blinded observer um, who was a neurologist, um, pediatric neurologist, geneticist, and developmental pediatrician. So somebody who's triple board certified, see the kids closer to 30 months to 36 months because then we know we have stability Uh, because, you know, there's lots of variation in developmental trajectories. So she was unaware of the findings. She just knew she was evaluating babies who we had seen that were at risk, but she had no idea what they were at risk for, whether it was autism. And then the other thing we found was the other babies that bubbled up were kids with developmental language delay, so they didn't have autism, but they had delay in language, and typically it was in expressive language, so sort of the speech delay child, except mm-hmm. it was an infant nine months. And so she saw all of the kids on now two, almost two full years after we had flagged them and sent them to appropriate services and said to families, we're worried, this is what we think you should get. And we identified out of our thousand babies, um, on the you know on our measures, we identified all altogether fifteen fourteen babies um, that met from our factors they were at risk for autism and then we had approximately thirty three that looked like they had developmental language disorders, and we had very good um, agreement or reliability so if we called it autism, then out of our 14 kids we called autism, 13 had autism based on the exit that was completed by the physician who was blinded to our results. So it was highly, highly correlated. Um, And then we had good agreement on the developmental language disorders, and it was, we agreed about 87% on what we saw, what we called developmental language disorder, and she saw the same thing. And interestingly, we had one child who had been our only child with developmental delay. Um, it It was a little girl, and by the time she got seen and by the physician, she had actually evolved into autism. So she had regressed somewhere between our initial evaluation and when she was seen at three. And then we had one child that we were concerned had autism, and she looked like a developmental language disorder by the time she was seen. So we had very high reliability and very good predictive value that if we called it, it was likely, more than likely to be. And that's so, sort of the beauty of it.
0: Right. And, and, and so well, let me ask this question first. What difference does it make as far as early intervention? A, a nine-month-old obviously can't do a lot of... Um, you know, therapies that are available. But why is it important to know what is it that that a doctor or a parent having this information can change an outcome? Well, what's
1: really important is, It then changes everybody's focus on the baby to this is something that the baby's going to grow out of towards this is something that the baby needs help with. And so we can start engaging with babies at nine months in motor imitation, you know, clapping their hands for when you say clap or patty cake, how big is the baby, so big. These are all skills that the babies with autism cannot do. And this begins to lay the groundwork of motor imitation. We can also give the moms the one and the dads the one question they've been wondering. Um, which is this baby needs help. The baby's not purposely not doing it. Mm-hmm. The baby's not going to catch up. This baby needs help. And so then everybody is much more mobilized towards assisting versus watching. And those seven months are very, very strategic because you can lay the groundwork for motor imitation, you can lay the groundwork for speech, and li- speech imitation, for social connectedness. And, the you know, the baby's brains are very plastic and very malleable and so younger is always better and so that seven months is a world of difference because when you come in at 16 18 months with language delay now you are you have no sounds typically lots of the kids with autism and you have other kids who have 20 30 words i mean that's a world of difference
0: right and you know also i think it's for parents it's empowering. Um, you know, the, j- just for the parents to have early education and have that empowerment of knowledge um, is so important. So, you know, how, my next question would be, um, how do parents ask for this? How do we get pediatricians to use this universally? Well,
1: we're, that's a, um, a very helpful question as well. We are developing a screening tool and we're in phase three. And it's called the CASI, which is a comprehensive autism screening um, test for infants. And we added actually two biomarkers that we believe will assist in the reliability. And so we're literally, as we speak, gathering babies for the next 1,000, and we have about 300 babies in sort of the pipeline already. Um, I would say to parents that... They can go back to their pediatricians and um, ask that pediatricians monitor the acceleration of the head growth, and they could easily, this is described in the article, the head tilt reflex, and pediatricians can start administering it. And if a baby fails, then they should send them to specialists in autism, because it's not... The babies are very clear when you've seen a lot of babies with autism, but this is mm-hmm. not something it would be that a pediatrician might recognize. But somebody who knows babies and does a lot of babies and a lot of babies with autism will clearly recognize the difficulty the, baby, the baby's having.
0: Are you so, still recruiting people for this study, or is this contained to your area? And where can parents go to learn more?
1: They can, we are recruiting and we're happy to have families participate. Um, It's in our area so that because we have to have the pediatricians do it, but if somebody had a pediatric practice that wanted to participate, we'd be more than happy to consider them for enrollment because we're trying to get it done as quickly as possible um, for the obvious reasons so that we can get that, you know, the information out. Um, And they can go to the Focus Foundation and contact us. And then we will follow up our nurse who, um, and our research assistant who managed the study. We'll get back to them.
0: Well, this is just incredible, um, you know, because this is such a benign um, test, you know. And it, it's not like, you know, most um, diagnostic tools are very time-consuming. It has a lot of parent participation, a lot of, um, you know, being a medical historian for the child. So um, this is just remarkable.
1: Yeah, I'm very pleased with the results, and most important about it, besides that it's earlier than the MCHAT, is also it's totally um, it's unaffected by language or reading ability or literacy mm-hmm. or socioeconomic. And one of the things with parent questionnaires, particularly you know throughout the country, is language impacts on parents' ability to describe Absolutely. or to understand what's being asked. And the other thing, it's really good. We found that. You know, in in our study, none of the parents or the health care providers were worried about the babies that we identified. So we knew we were early because we had caught them before even their level of vigilance went up, which is very, very important. But the other thing is, first born are much different for moms because moms are learning. And so, you know, parents report when they have a second, when their second child has autism, they always recognize it sooner because they have a benchmark to compare it to. Exactly.
0: exactly. And so
1: this negates that, which is, I think, very valuable.
0: And that's very hard for first time parents because sometimes you just have that innate, that gut feeling um, that something's not right. So to have a tool like this early on is just Amazing. So, um, you know, I thank you for bringing this to us. I think parents are going to be very interested in this. I'm hoping and for sure the pediatricians are going to be interested in this. And you're coming back next week, and um, we're going to talk again about the biological treatment to promote recovery from dyslexia because when you came on and did that first interview, it Mm -hmm. was like an explosion because so many parents had no idea um, how early it could be caught, that there was treatment for it. So um, I'm really looking forward to speaking again next week.
1: I am as well. Thank you.
0: So why don't you give us your um, website, your, your URL, so that people can find you?
1: We are www.thefocusfoundation.org. Um, and, you know, we advise people to go on because there's a screening tool for um, other problems as well on there, our cassie is not up because it 's just in the formative stages, but any information there's, um, you know there's an email to send to and it's monitored every day, and we look forward to hearing from families.
0: Well,